Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Outward for the month of April. I'm Christina Quadrucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, The Waves. And I recently celebrated a major life milestone. Uh, After three weeks of home quarantine, I finally, for the first time in my life, felt a physical urge to put on a bra. I'm recording this in the presence of and being held by a real life bra. (laughs) You're welcome. I haven't, Christina, that's impressive because I have not worn shoes or carried a bag or done any of those things that I normally have spent so much money on, so good for you. (laughs) It's a little dose of normality. I also wore my little patent leather slides to take out the compost yesterday, and I felt so sexy. (laughs) I didn't know what to do with myself. (laughs) I'm Ramon Alam. I'm one of Slate's care and feeding parenting advice columnists, and I have my health, so I'm not complaining, but I have been feeling so powerless or something, and I've just thrown myself into a life of quiet domesticity, of cooking and cleaning and looking after my kids and trying not to count the days. And I am not this zen by nature, and I'm beginning to wonder if it's the five o'clock glass of wine that has done this to me. <laughs> five o'clock is, uh, is uh, late, I'd Yeah, say, that's really it's Admirable restraint, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm I, impressed. Thank you. Um, I'm Brian Louder, the editor of Outward, and I am simply bowled over by all the bread baking I'm seeing out there during quarantine. Normally, I'd <laughs> rise to the occasion to offer you novices some crumbs of wisdom, but from your post, I can see that there's no need. Brian, this is, I mean, I'm the dad in this group, but this is like the dad jokiest intro. I know. I, I, I. I was feeling dad jokey today. I also am feeling all the bread. It's very exciting to see everybody getting into the uh, the situation. Although I've heard that there are yeast shortages. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, if anybody's hoarding the yeast, stop doing that because we <laughs> all need uh, need some. Well, listeners, you're listening to our second episode recorded from our homes. We hope that you all are staying safe and healthy out there um, or at least hanging in there where you can. We have a great episode planned for this month. We're going to start off with a segment on queer socialization and sexualization during coronavirus and quarantine. We're going to talk to Andrew Kahn, our beloved former colleague who was an interactives designer at Slate. Um, He's going to talk to us about a Zoom sex party he attended. Should be a spicy convo. Um, Then we're going to talk about Tiger King, the Netflix show that launched a thousand unfunny tweets and about (laughs) 10 good ones. Um, We all watched it. It's got a marvelous gay villain at the center of the story. We're going to talk about the queer politics and aesthetics of Tiger King. Uh, But first, 
let's start off with some prides and provocations. Uh, Brian, how are you feeling this month? Well, I um, am definitely feeling pride. Uh, I watched last night the season finale, series finale, I should say, of Schitt's Creek. Um, and what a wonderful show that was. It had such, um, I think, organic, complex queer representation, especially in the characters of uh, David and Patrick, um, who um, who are sort of the center or part of the center of the show. Um, and then also you had this wonderful camp icon and Moira Rose, um, and seeing the series wrap up was really, it, it wraps actually on their, on David and Patrick's wedding. Um, I won't say more so as to not spoil it, but, um, it's just a beautiful show, a beautiful series. Um, and they did just, they did such a good job, uh, I think, uh, dealing with queer and by especially representation, um, in that series. Did y'all watch it? Oh, yes. I love that show. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't watch it, and I now feel like I really need to. I, I sort of like watching things when they're concluded, and so you're not hostage to um, when they are being, you know, you're not waiting mm-hmm. for the next season mm-hmm. or whatever. And um, also, as Christina mentioned in the intro, Tiger King la- launched a thousand unfunny tweets, and I feel like the shows that everyone is watching often launch these spoilery tweets and it's yeah. sort of it's so it can be so irritating like just a couple of years ago we watched the sopranos my husband and i for the first time and mm-hmm. it was so great to watch it at a moment when no one else was talking about it and able to spoil it for us or undo it for us you know yeah yeah i totally I, think you could go back and watch shit's creek that would be a great way, great way to watch shit's creek now um, it did for sure. take me a little while to get into it i think it rewards commitment like once you really get into the characters and can mm-hmm. recognize them and fall in love with them that's when i really started to enjoy it yeah um, well, we certainly have time on our hands now maybe i'll pick that one up <laughs> yeah you do what's your month been like ruman what are you are you proud or provoked you know i um I really wanted to come up with a pride, but um, in fact, I ended up being provoked. And you're, <laughs> you're going to have to w- walk down a little path with me. But um, I'm sure you've heard in a lot of the reporting about coronavirus, this idea of a patient zero. Mm-hmm. And I had not been familiar with the extent to which that is actually a, um, a fallacy or like not really a thing in immunology. And there was a, there was a review published at the New Republic of a book by Richard McKay called Patient Zero and the Making of the AIDS Epidemic. And McKay's book looks at the case of Gaetan Dugas, who was the flight attendant who was isolate, who was talked about in Randy Schultz's In the Band Played On as the right. patient zero of the AIDS epidemic. And the book and this this review, which is by a writer named Scott, which is by the writer Scott Stern, really talks about how this is just a way, a myth that we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better about the moral dimension of disease, that you could sort of blame it on a typhoid Mary kind of figure and that that person could be shunned and um, this disease that is affecting all of society could therefore be blamed on one person. And I found that very useful. I mean, we've heard the president try to label this the Chinese virus. Like we've heard all of this language trying to fix blame for this thing that's happening to our society on a single person or a single group. And we know better than that. And so this review of this book really clarified for me that I'm still provoked by that language around the way AIDS unfolded in this country. And I think it's still worth interrogating what that trope is and what what that says about our desire to have a bad guy to fight against. Yeah. Yeah, totally. 
was the article that you mentioned what provoked you or or would you recommend it? <laughs> no, I highly recommend it okay. actually. I suppose what provoked me is just um remembering that Schultz had done that and had mm-hmm. done that in his book mm-hmm. because disease is very abstract and virus is very abstract and it's actually very helpful um for human understanding to say like this is the bad person in this story and that doesn't always, and that's not fair. It's not fair to Gaetan Dugas. It's not fair to anyone who we talk about in this culture right now with respect to coronavirus. And I think it's just my, it's good to have that in mind as we talk about something as abstract and complex as disease. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, it also provides a sort of false comfort to be able to think about disease as something that happens to someone else or that someone can be blamed for instead of something that has a very unsettling degree of randomness to it that's absolutely right and i think that we've seen um i mean i'm sure i'm sure you guys have seen i have seen on on instagram all of my well-heeled friends retreating to country homes and sort of this idea that you can um insulate yourself from something but actually i don't think this works that way and i think immunologists Mm -hmm. like that's what immunologists are telling us constantly that it doesn't work that way it's not about morality and it's not about means disease doesn't care about those things and um you know not have not having access to means can certainly make you more susceptible to disease, but the morality component of it is just not prevalent. And it was worth remembering that that came into play with AIDS, and it was worth remembering, I think, that we need to avoid a language of patient zero generally. Yeah, definitely. Christina, how are you feeling this month? I'm feeling proud this month um, for two reasons. The first, just quickly, I want to call out Republic Restoratives, which is a queer-owned distillery here in D.C., um, which has been making hand sanitizer for the past month or so um, to give to uh, frontline responders and workers here in D.C. Um, I highly recommend their Burrow Bourbon if you are interested in drinking alcohol. Um, but the main thing I want to recommend and the main thing that's been giving me pride over the past couple weeks, uh, Ruman called me out for having a very horny morning on Twitter recently because <laughs> I tweeted like three things in a, in a row about like just things hot people were doing. Um, so I want to highlight one of them. Um, I don't know if y'all are familiar with the Don't Rush Challenge. It was started by and taken up by black women around the world uh, who do a, a thing where like you're wearing one outfit Or maybe it's like before you put your makeup on or you're wearing just sort of like a casual outfit and then you put something on the camera and immediately when you pull it back, you're like in a totally different outfit or dressed up more or something like that. (gasps) Oh, I've seen this. Yeah, yeah. Uh And then you sort of pass something on, like maybe throw something off screen and the next person picks it up. Um, It's a really, really clever use of the TikTok medium. Um, Right, right. And there's this one that's all androgynous lesbians and non-binary people. Um, it was tweeted out by Nija Abdullah. Uh, and my, it came across my feed because a friend of mine tweeted it. And there's just a whole bunch of really good-looking people passing a do-rag around <laughs> and changing from like their sports bras and boxers to a full-on look. Um, and I think I probably watched it like 30 times one morning. I mean, like, I, I watched it. It's, it's hypnotic. Like, yeah, I, it I'm is. so glad that you shared it because it's really it's awesome. it's clever and funny and like wholesome. And, you know, yeah. and also like they're all really great looking, you know. Right. And it's like the choreography and the editing is so precise and just done so well. But then also it's just an array of 
incredible beauty. Um, and I learned that apparently all of these people had never met in real life before. Um, they just like orchestrated this online, um, but they're planning on meeting up at New York City Pride whenever that happens, but they're from all over the country. So I really hope that they get to meet together and do some sort of choreographed photo oh or God. video that can then be shared with the rest of us. Uh, so you can find this video on Twitter. Uh, Nija Abdullah is the one who tweeted it out. Um, and her handle is Save It Bruh. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That's B-R-U-H. So that's what I'm proud of this month. Excellent. Wonderful. We're all staying inside right now, but that doesn't change the fact that it's spring outside. I feel very lucky to be shacked up with my husband, but spring fever comes for everybody, right? I spent way too much time on Twitter and I've seen more than one person allude to using Zoom or one of the other video chat and conference platforms for sex. I first found this hard to believe, and then I found it really admirably clever. Necessity is the mother of invention and sex is a human need. In the ongoing series of coronavirus diaries on Slate, Andrew Kahn wrote frankly about his experience at a virtual sex party. I'm just going to read one of the, a couple of the lines that I liked so well. He writes, Like all my other video conferences and stretched out phone calls this week, playing games with friends, cooking with my parents, lighting the Shabbat candles with my grandmother, there was a sweetness to it, real sustenance, mixed with a painful awareness of uncertainty and separation. I thought that was such a lovely line and such a beautiful way to think about what sex provides in, in any community. And I'm so glad that Andrew was here to talk to us a little more about his piece. Andrew, welcome. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. I, wouldn't, I just want to say that. So when I, when I read your piece, I, I got like super contrarian and I went on Twitter and I said, do people really have sex on Zoom? Yes or no? And I made a poll and the results <laughs> were dead 50-50. And uh-huh. so you wrote this piece. So you're telling me that this happened. So tell me how, tell me everything. <laughs> well, for, first, first, I'm going to say that I wrote the piece a couple weeks ago, which is now like a million years ago in yeah. quarantine time. And so at the time, um, I think it was like a super novelty that it was happening. Um, but because we're now all like in Rip Van Winkle zone, um, it just like it just feels so much more normal. Um, and I think there have been a lot more groups doing these virtual sex parties outside this particular one. Um, I know this one um, has continued in that period of several weeks after I wrote my piece. The party that I went to was the second in their series. And they're now on like week three or something. I talked to the host this afternoon and he said that like attendance peaked at some point a while back and has been like steadily waning. But like the the first thing that like came to mind as I was thinking of what we would talk about during this interview is just like the, that time warp aspect of how mm. quickly the norms shifted in one direction and then were normalized. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
I want to, can you just describe for us and for our listeners, like what this looks like, like what, what it, on your end sort of as a, as a participant and then also like what you're seeing, maybe not like in graphic detail, but just the, the sort of, you know, general. It looks like Zoom. It looks like a pitch meeting. Um, <laughs> one of the things I said in the article is that like, I indelibly have this like anxious association with right. Zoom and feel like I'm about to be put on the spot to be given my opinion or state an idea. Um, and, 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 and so that was how I felt at first. Yeah, it was, it's like a grid. Um, if you choose to view it as a grid full of people masturbating or sticking things up their orifices. <laughs> or just like looking on um, and making like this kind of face, like the sort of. Describe the face you're making. Yeah, what was, was an what audio was medium. I'm, I'm furrowing my brow and, and relaxing my, my jaw a little bit. <laughs> and there has to be like a little bit of like jiggly hand motion yeah. out of the frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the host, um, the, the guy who hosted it was like very, very active in like emceeing the whole thing really? and being like, are you going to come now? Are you, like, I'll, like, I'll spotlight you if Aww. you're going to come now. So <laughs> he could control who was the featured speaker? I think he could. Yeah. Like he could like, pin, he could like pin somebody if they were about to mm. bust a nut. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, like every good meeting needs to be led by someone who knows what they're doing. So really, yeah. it is yeah. not unlike sitting in a corporate meeting, right? Although at the same time it is. Um, <laughs> does this person, does the facilitator take such an active role in the IRL sex party? Because you've been to this in real life too, right? Yeah, I've been, I've been to it in real life and it overlaps with the real life experience in like several striking ways. The facilitator is like a genuinely very smart, socially apt guy. Uh, and he's just like very good at managing queer sex spaces, which is not a small feat. There are other sex parties in New York that are in all other respects like this one. They take place in the same spaces. They have similar attendees. Um, But his particular way of managing things uh, helps everything go smoother. Could you say more about that? Like, is is it because like he's warm and funny or is it because he's encouraging or welcoming or what exactly what's the sort of personality type that makes you adept at something like that well he's very good at articulating behavioral standards in a way that does not feel scoldy at all and and that's just like linguistic facility and social facility being able to just like talk about the importance of consent and not making other people feel bad uh the irl space um generally tries to be really, really inclusive along multiple axes of, uh, of race and age and gender. It's mostly gay, cis, male focused, um, but there usually are some trans participants as well. Uh, and he is pretty good, at least from my perspective, um, at, at making people feel welcome. And then beyond that, he's good at making people feel sexy. And um, that was particularly in evidence uh, in the Zoom version where he was, you know, making helpful, horny comments to, to, to sort of keep momentum going. And, and it started with just small talk. It started before anybody took their pants off. It was just like, how's everybody doing? Let's, like, let's have a brief, like, group therapy session. 
So there are two things that I thought about a lot as I was thinking about um, Zoom as a venue for group sex. One of them was the fact that I think unless you change your settings, you're looking at yourself too. There's a little square where you can (laughs) see yourself, which is not, you know, even though you might be thinking about your presentation and your performance of sexuality when you're in a place like this, you're not usually looking at yourself. Or if you're, if you're, you know, having sex in front of a mirror, like there's a very like deliberate act you have to take to want to look at yourself. Um, The other thing is that you can't make eye contact with people unless you stare into your camera which at that point it's like Hal you know in like 2001 a space odyssey like you're just staring into the (laughs) void which seems creepy to me how did those two aspects play into your experience of this space um I agree that really goes into the phenomenology of of sex uh (laughs) (laughs) that's what we're all about on this podcast yeah yeah um so yes, I could see myself and it was kind of fun and felt necessary because, you know, by the point that I was taking my clothes off, I did want to be very careful in how I was presenting myself. Um, and did I've, you do special lighting, by the way? Like, did you, did you like prepare? I didn't do special lighting, but I did like move my laptop around my house a million times as I was finding <laughs> the right, there was like a very long wind up. Um, I was a little self-conscious at first and wary of like being naked on camera in a way that people could screenshot and then realize that like I was actually writing an entire article about this. <laughs> and so it wouldn't exactly be surprising for there to emerge evidence of it. And I've done plenty of other um, more reckless things uh, in the past. But if I was going to appear on camera, I did like want to know how I looked and, and make it look really hot. So I feel like there's been a little bit of an emerging discourse around this idea of like whether we should or shouldn't try to replicate, you know, all of these experiences that we're used to having in our real lives online. So through through Zoom or whatever, um, you know, people have been having dance parties where the DJ is like spinning alone in their bedroom and you're supposed to sort of like equate or make that uh, into a substitute for for going to the club. And there's many other things like that. Do you feel like this uh, sex party or the idea of these sex parties is actually satisfying the same sort of itch that you might have had to participate in them? Or is it is it something lesser or different or weirder? Like, I would it- say it's different and a little bit lesser. And I'll try to answer Christina's eye contact question along the way here as well. I hadn't started going to sex parties until last year. Um, and I was like a tiny bit diffident at first and then discovered that I really liked them. Um, and part of what's exciting about the IRL sex parties is that they're kind of like this sort of microcosmic hyper theatrical version of cruising mm. where there is a sense of spontaneity and your eyes meet across the room and you don't know what's going to happen and it's fun. Um, and you meet people. I've met real friends at these. Uh, and they're really dependent on a kind of heightened openness to experience and a heightened trust of other people, um, a, a trust around your own privacy and a trust around around sex. Um, and one of the things that amazed me when I first started attending these was that that openness could be there at the same time as a very high level of respect that people reciprocated the trust. And when you're on a a Zoom 
sex party looking at a, a grid of people, that sort of eye contact across a crowded room is is not the dynamic at all. It was much more a dynamic of like group therapy, but everybody has their dick out. That's it, <laughs> like that's like, and that's a different animal. Yeah. And um, so. I like. I think it's a great thing that the host set this up, and um, I think it it does provide an outlet emotionally and sexually for people. And it's important to continue being creative about these things. Uh, but I definitely do not think that this format would ever replace um, the in the flesh version. I, one thing that has surprised me in in terms of my own experience of social isolation is I don't think I realized how much my own understanding and experience of being in like a gendered and sexualized body depended on my interactions with other people. Like there is no getting dressed up to go out to see and be seen. There's no, you know concern or awareness that I'm being looked at and that's both good and bad like when I'm walking around outside sometimes I don't want to be looked at because I don't want to be harassed outside like that's happening a lot less because I'm not going outside as much but I also you know love to get dressed up and love to express my gender visually and in what I wear and how I walk around and uh, that's impossible for me now too and, and also something that's not easily replicable over a video chat and so I'm feeling a little bit less myself in that way and I think that's why I had the urge to put on a bra this yes, week. I was just going to say that's why you wore a bra this week. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I showered just like... for this call. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> this call. Has, has Zoom now become a more sexualized space for you? Like when you were drawing up the app to get on this call were you like, oh, it's sex time. <laughs> like has the opposite happened from when you first got on the call and it felt like a workspace? Um, no, I would say I still had the very strong workspace flashback. Okay, I would say that that is ineradicable. That's that's always going to be there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I think that's one reason phone calls don't always do the job. And I I love phone calls even in the pre-quarantine era. Um, there is something important about having a, a public square where you're seeing people in all their three-dimensionality. <laughs> not just with your ears. Um, and that's, that's a way that we locate and, and create ourselves. How, how quickly after, you know, um, the quarantine is lifted, do you think you will find yourself at a real sex party? Is it something you're, you're really craving or are you sort of? I, I want to say very, very quickly. <laughs> I mean, it, it, de- it depends on where things are epidemiologically though. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, th- there have been other countries where outbreaks have seemed contained and then have sort of burst back. Yeah. yeah. And I have generally, this just happened in Singapore, and I've generally been on the um, very cautious side um, and, and how I've handled myself during this. And so I, I desperately hope that there comes a time soon when it like feels safe and fun to go to a sex party. Um, and to like shake hands with people, yeah, just to do <laughs> unless that. unless we're going to get rid of that custom, as Dr. Fauci is recommending, yeah. um, uh, and a time where it just like is fine again, 
we're fine enough again to have these kinds of connections with with strangers um, in in the uh, most admiring sense of the word stranger but I just I don't know how the world is gonna look yeah well Andrew for your sake for all of our sakes I do hope that things get back to that old normal really soon and I also hope that you stay healthy you mentioned that you were not feeling great but I hope that you are on the mend and um, I thank you so much for joining us to talk about this thanks a lot be well Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. All right. I am so excited today to talk with y'all about Tiger King. If our listeners have somehow avoided it until now, Tiger King is Netflix's newest documentary hit. It tells the story of Joe Exotic, the flamboyant impresario behind a wild cat zoo in rural Oklahoma, who describes himself as a, quote, gay, gun-carrying redneck with a mullet. In addition to tigers and lions, Joe also maintains a human menagerie featuring a troubled polycule of young husbands. That's right, a polycule of young husbands, a team of devoted park workers, and sketchy outside investors who eventually play a part in Joe ending up in prison over a failed murder-for-hire plot against an animal rights activist named Carol. Whew. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, and then there are also the country songs. Oh, the country uh, songs. Daniel, um, could we hear a little of I Saw a Tiger to set the mood? Then stand back and marvel What a beautiful cat Cause I saw a tiger Now I understand I saw a tiger Well, there's that. So <laughs> there's a lot that we could talk about in Tiger King, like endless, endless things. Uh, but for the purposes of our show, uh, we wanted to focus on the series uh, queer elements. So I think the best place to start is thinking about Joe himself. Uh, what do we make of his gayness? Um, did it strike y'all as odd to see a man 
be so loud about his sexuality and his cultural milieu. Um, what what did you make of Joe? I mean, I first of all, this show is insane, and <laughs> the way that you just described it is like, it, if anything, it's like downplays how insane it is. Um, but I really struggle to think of um, a person analogous to joe exotic and the person who i came up with was little richard actually there's something almost defiant like he takes his homosexuality and turns it into a cudgel he sort of weaponizes it and use wears it as this proud armor and it's it's pretty remarkable that he does that and literal like sequin like chain mail sequin chain mail like (laughs) his beautiful like platinum dyed hair mullet like his just everything about his the way he presents himself is is very loud and very um theatrical and very confident um obviously i think that has a lot to do with being a man i think it has a lot to do with being a white man i think it's a kind of like when i mentioned little richard before i think little richard is sort of all the more remarkable for being a black man in that particular moment in history when he began his career but I do think there's something really analogous in the way he turned being a sissy into kind of like this like show-stopping performance that you almost couldn't turn away from because he embodied it so fully. And I think that Joe, talking about Joe and his homosexuality in a weird way distracts from what an obvious, like... <sighs> what a flawed person he is and um, what a cruel and maybe dangerous person he reveals himself to be over the course of that show. He's like, he's truly a villain. But um, the thing that troubled me about the show's lens on him was, I mean, I felt like the show, I felt like it kind of makes a spectacle out of somebody who is from a rural place or is not like doesn't have the polish that we might associate with like the people who made the program it felt to Mm. me like it looked down at him and in and many of the people in the show that it looked down on many of the of the players and i don't know how you i don't know how to articulate what that what that is like what that perspective is of condescension or and i also don't know how you correct for that how you look at a population that maybe you don't always see reflected on the television and that you do it in a way that is respectful and not sort of gawking. Did you guys feel that? To me, that really became clear when Joe Exotic starts threatening Carol, who Mm -hmm. is his nemesis. And this, it's, you know, she portrays herself as an animal rights activist who runs this sanctuary for tigers, it's unclear how different that sanctuary is from all of the other exhibitions of tigers. So not clear whether she's, you know, they call into question whether or not she's actually an animal rights activist. Anyway, um, the way he threatens her and demeans her is extremely gendered and sexualizing. And um, so for instance, Joe rapes her in effigy, more or less. He, he, takes a blow-up doll, names it Carol, and right. puts a dildo in it. He posts a picture of one of those blobfishes and says, you know, calls it her vagina. Meanwhile, I don't see him talking about the genitals of, like, the local sheriff who comes to give him a citation or something. Um, 
And that part of the, that aspect of the harassment wasn't explored as fully as I would have wanted it to be, especially because I think it's interesting and uh, clarifying because it comes from a gay man. You know, it's not, this isn't a person who is, who has women around him like the, the other, the other people in the tiger exhibiting community. They all kind of have the same aesthetic or vibe. Like, I don't know what it is about the, uh, tiger milieu that is <laughs> that has all this like visible and palpable sexuality like it's, it's the same sexy. people who would have a ti- tiger rug in front of a fireplace yes right yeah it's very yeah. swinger or something and i i also i wondered um i don't know if the filmmakers are gay or not but i felt like there was some kind of there was some fundamental misunderstanding of Joe's relationship to his two spouses. He has these two husbands who are quite a bit younger than him. And um, over the arc of the show, it is revealed that they, you know, that neither of them really identified as gay until meeting him. And then after leaving him, one of them is with the woman. I don't know. I didn't finish. So you guys all have to correct me if that's wrong, but, um, that his first husband actually was having an affair with a woman who worked at the park and his second husband who died under sort of terrible circumstances was also possibly not really gay. And that it seemed clear that what was happening, it seemed clear to me that what was happening was some kind of transaction involving drugs. Um, and that there, and I just, I wish that the show had probed that a little more explicitly. I just, I mean, if this, if, if the documentary had been probing the life of like a political science teacher at New York University who was married to two 19 year old men mm-hmm. and sort of had this sort of over the top relationship with them and then sort of cast them aside, I think that it would, it would, it would interrogate that a little more deeply. And I, I, I just felt like it, some, somehow the perspective was like, look at this guy getting away with this thing in Oklahoma, like getting away with this thing in plain view. But then the the documentary itself perpetuates that by not pushing deeper into it. Um, You know, there are other queer folks in the show um, around the sort of, in addition to the the husbands anyway, around Joe. And I think one of the most interesting is this park manager called Saf, um, who actually loses, uh, who's trans and who loses a limb, um, an arm to a tiger, um, in a really hor- horrible accident, but even so remains loyal, uh, pretty much to, to Joe, uh, throughout the show. Uh, what do we, what did we think about, about Saf? I, I found him really fascinating. It's another disappointment, I think, with the production is that the, film the the series seems to misgender him um yeah no which is disappointing again it just feels like that's a fairly is in 2020 it's a fairly straightforward thing for and there's a responsibility on the shoulders of someone making a film uh, to to be mindful of that kind of stuff and i you know saf's loyalty to joe after being you know mauled by an animal is really something but you can also understand the psychology at play of um you know somebody who becomes kind of a father figure to you know people who may not have access to that you know so, you know sort of takes care of them with 
money and comfort and drugs and a place to be and work to do. And it's very culty and it's very sad. And I feel like the show wants you to be amused more than it wants you to be horrified. And that was my disappointment with it. And um, it's sad. It made me very sad and I worried about him too. Like, I mean, he lost his hand, you know? And that's, uh, yeah, it's a sad show. It's a much sadder show than I think the jokes and memes, memes would have you yeah. believe. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, at first, again, it, it seemed almost like, oh, th- is this a queer community? You know, is this mm-hmm. like a little family that takes care of each other? And that's the way it's described a little bit that, you know, Joe Exotic's crew is his family. He takes care of them. He gives opportunities to people who are just out of prison or who don't have anywhere else to go. But uh, like there's two sides to that coin. And the other side is that that gives somebody a lot of leeway for exploitation. And, you know, I would have loved to know more about Saf's background and what led him to work at the Tiger Park. Um, I mean, it seemed like one of the most chilling parts of the documentary to me was after Saf gets his arm ripped off and Joe says, I'm never going to financially recover from this. Like, that's his first instinct. And it seemed like such a betrayal of the trust that that I know to exist in so many communities like that, where it's queer people who who don't always have other opportunities relying on somebody for support and just uh, to be, to see that sort of relationship that I relate to on one hand be turned into an area of um, like violence and exploitation was really disturbing to me. How do we sort of, I mean, I, I think we've touched on this, but how do we feel as as queers about a figure like a, a bad gay figure like this <laughs> becoming so sort of famous in this moment. I mean, as you say, there've been so many memes and jokes and, and I think I think a lot of viewers did sort of basically take this as as, you know, amusing but with, you know, a dash of like concern for the animals, but but like otherwise sort of funny. Um I don't know. I, I'm like grappling with it still because because it's uh, like you, Christina, I think I was really, I really was taken in by a certain sense of like, you know, unique queer community that was happening. And then it like you, was ripped out from under me. So I don't know. It's it's strange to have this person like be so popular, <laughs> you know. Uh, Are you asking Morgan. like, is it good for the gays or bad? For kind, the gays? I mean, I think it's bad for the gays, but like, uh, but yeah, I guess maybe put it that way. What do you, what's your, what's your feelings about it? Um, somebody said to me, and this really like, I mean, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of reading Donald Trump into everything, right? We all are, but it's impossible not to notice a resonance here between the sort of like the bravado and the sort of brash, like, this is who I am. Like, I don't like this unapologetic brashness, um, especially as contrasted in the documentary with um, Carol, who is Joe's nemesis and her kind of like sort of reasonableness, sort of like uninterrogated reasonableness. It just felt like you're watching Hillary and Trump all <laughs> over again. Oh my God. And, Can and I make so, a quick a quick note for Carol, by the way, while we're talking about her? Yes, just, please. Um, I fell down a rabbit hole. She wrote a long, <laughs> long response to the documentary on her I'm sure she did. website. And I think it's worth reading because of course you should take it with a grain of salt too. But she, uh, some of the, something you said earlier, Christina, about like not being sure about the nature of her, park um that is 
seems to be pretty much a manu- a, uh, a fiction of the the show in terms of it being like c- comparable. Oh wow! Um, yeah, they're pretty different different places, um, and so it's worth reading Carol's side of the story because also she says that the and I've read this two or three places now that the documentarians sort of approached with this idea of doing a. Um, a real animal rights piece, um, sort of in the line of, I think it was called Blackfish, the one about SeaWorld. Um, And then they were very surprised to see it turn into this like character study. Um, So anyway, just it's, we'll post that on the show page, but it's worth reading her, her rebuttal um, a little bit too, I think. I mean, I guess that's another way in which it just made me think of Trump. It's like this sort of like the idea of this like outsized performance trumping, so to speak, any discussion of like, substance right Mm -hmm. like instead of having like an interrogation of animal rights or you know the effects of drugs in rural communities or what it is to be gay or different in a rural space it's just like oh look at this crazy persona yeah and in in general in in the context of like the difference between irony and earnestness in culture it's really clarifying to me to think about Blackfish as a potential model for what this documentary could have been and to and you know this you can arrange and rearrange the footage in any number of ways and the way the footage of these people and these animals were arranged for this documentary seems to uh, lean more toward like detached irony than the sort of actual statement making that documentaries can be really valuable for. Um, but even if it was just a, 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 a look at these characters, this like strange queer community in Oklahoma, um, I don't know, I, as far as whether it's good for the gays or bad for the gays, I always like to see diverse representations <laughs> of the LGBTQ community. And this was certainly uh, a, a flavor of, queer you don't see very often but because it seems to invite a a little bit of mockery um and because so many of the sort of toxic elements of gay masculinity fails to be interrogated i'm gonna say bad for the gays Mm -hmm. yeah i think i think bad for the gays Ultimately, too. I mean, and also bad for the tigers. Yeah, ter- <laughs> you know what? Terrible worst, for the worst tigers. For the tigers. Some of whom were gay. Did you guys catch that in the first episode? I did. I did. <laughs> no. What do you? T- what do you mean? There were two this, ti- two yeah. male tigers like humping each other, <gasps> and Joe Exotic was like, "We don't discriminate here." Oh my god! I forgot that. Wow. <laughs> Uh, well, that's a happy note to end on. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully those tigers are somewhere better now um, than, than where they were a bit uh, being gay. Um, well, that's Tiger King. Um, I think it is worth... I think it's worth giving a little watch to just to know what people are talking about, but uh, yeah. maybe not finish the whole thing if you don't feel like it, um, because it is it is kind of a lot... Um, and take a bring your critical queer eye uh, because it, it will try <laughs> bring to your salt shaker bring your salt shaker yeah definitely all right I think that's about all the time we have for this month um, but before we go we have a special edition of the gay agenda this month we're all going to share our favorite gay villains Brian who's yours 
So, well, what I want to do is, um, I'm, I might have a few because what, what I'm going to do is recommend, <laughs> recommend, uh, <laughs> well, I want to, I want to recommend this podcast, fellow podcast, uh, called bad gays. Um, it's a very apropos, uh, it's now in its third season and each episode, it covers a bad gay from history. Um, so they have done, uh, they did recently did actually a special episode on our friend Pete Buttigieg. Um, but they also have done James Buchanan recently, J. Edgar Hoover, um, Frederick the Great, uh, Roy Cohn. So you oh, can, man. you can sort of see, see the, the type of folk they're, uh, person they're looking at. But yeah, it's, it's a wonderful, um, sort of, um, I don't want to call it academic, but very smart, like sort of cerebral podcast uh, from uh, the makers who look at who look at these figures and sort of discuss um, gay villainy over time. Um, it's really fun. So check that out. That sounds great. Christina, who is your gay villain? So I watched the movie Mary Queen of Scots recently. Um, it's from 2018 featuring Saoirse Ronan and Margot Robbie, among another among other, oh, uh, you really have been brilliant performances. A, you really have been horny lately, Christina. <laughs> Quarantine has had quite an effect on you. Why do you know the scene I'm going to talk <laughs> no, about? No, <laughs> but once you said Saoirse Ronan and Margot Robbie, I was like, okay, I see where they she's don't going hook with up. This. <laughs> they don't hook up in the movie. Um, the villain is a gay, or there are actually many villains in the story. Um, the main one, of course, is monarchy in general, um, <laughs> but that's not queer. Uh, the queer villain is uh, Henry Darnley, who's Mary's second husband. He's played by Jack Loudon, who, oh my God, the sexual energy this man brings to the screen, it, everyone can appreciate. Everyone of any sexuality can appreciate. Um, so I think I can spoil this because it's the movie came out in 2018, and you know it's historical, so all the historical things have already happened, although... Part of part of the plot that's queer is not necessarily supported by historical record, but um, just to give a, a short synopsis of the queer part of the movie, um, you know, Mary Queen of Scots, played by Saoirse Ronan, is a, a very determined queen, wants to marry for love and not just for status, and is also excited to bring an heir to the throne into the world. Um, she's seduced by Henry Darnley, and the sex scene that they have together is extremely hot. Then as soon as they get married, he sleeps with her gay uh, confidant who is, who sort of is like part of her little group of um, ladies in waiting. Uh, He's uh, the character. The historical figure is David Rizzio played by Ismael Cruz Cordova in the movie. Um, And it, it, I don't want to totally spoil this, but it, it ends in violence uh, in one of the most heartrending scenes. Actually, pretty much the only scene in the movie that really got my blood boiling. Um, there was the sex one and then the violent one. Really, I, I am just uh, a total archetype of the you know 21st century media consumer here. But uh, it was the queer villainy and the queer betrayal and backstabbing was unexpected to me. I didn't know what to expect going in. And... Um, it's even more perfect because you don't see it coming at all. Except now you will because you listen to this podcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Ruman, who's yours? So I really struggled with this and I thought of kind of, the people I came up with are kind of the opposite of Joe Exotic, but um, have you ever seen the Alfred Hitchcock movie Rope? No. Oh, it's an extraordinary so, movie yeah. about a young gay couple who kills somebody, put the body in a chest as their coffee table and um, have a party. And the two actors in the movie are super handsome and like they're very, very, um, everything about their presentation is so gay, but like it's never discussed. And mm -hmm. it's a really remarkable, they're very sinister and very creepy and they are like maniacs because they've killed somebody. And, but the context in which you're seeing them is so civilized and beautiful. It's almost like if Frasier and Niles Crane killed somebody, like that's kind of what it's like. And, oh, I um, and, it, <laughs> and so I think it's a really, like, I love the kind of campy, like Ursula the Sea Witch, like those, or, or all the James Bond villains who all feel really gay to me. Like, I love those performances, but there's something about rope that is very restrained and very civilized and becomes all the more chilling because of that. It's a really good movie. Ooh, I love the sound of that. Uh, we'll have to watch it during our yeah. ample time uh, during quarantine. Uh, okay, I think that is about it for this month. Uh, please send us feedback and topic ideas to outwardpodcast at slate.com or hit us up on Twitter or Facebook at Slate Outward. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts and the undisputed queen of our exotic queer menagerie. <laughs> if you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends about it and rate and review the show uh, so that others can find it and join our menagerie as well. Outward will be back in your feeds on May 20th. Until then, bye, Christina. Bye. See you, Ramon. See you guys. Stay safe and stay gay, everybody. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.